Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Megan Fraser about the role of archivists in working with underrepresented groups in archives and in curating collections. Welcome to the show, Megan. Thank you so much for having me back. I really enjoyed our last conversation, and I'm delighted to continue it. I am, too. For our listeners who um, are joining us for the first time, there is uh, another episode with Megan where we talk about archival etiquette. So if you're interested in that, you can check out that episode. And today we really want to talk about underrepresented groups in archives. But before we dive into that, will you please tell everyone about yourself? Oh, sure. Um, I have uh, an undergraduate degree in history from New York University, and I have a master's degree in library and information science from Pratt Institute in New York. And um, I've been working in libraries since 1993. Um, When I graduated with a history degree, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, except that I really didn't want to be a teacher. So other than that, I was kind of floundering around trying to figure out what to do with a history degree. And I got this amazing job at the New York Historical Society in the manuscript department. And that's where I realized um, that's where I was meant to be, you know, in, in with archives and um, original material, uh, primary sources. Really loved it. Um, so I worked there for a few years. I've also worked in uh, a maritime museum in Philadelphia. I worked at UCLA Library Special Collections. I was the um, Marcus A. McCorrison librarian at the American Antiquarian Society for a couple years. And right now, um, I'm working for a private collector in Los Angeles. I'm partnering with my husband, who is also an archivist. And we are... Um, as I said, we're working for this private collector. His uh, main focus is um, uh, motorcycle clubs, outlaw motorcycle clubs from Southern California in the 1950s and 60s. So it's this kind of like early outlaw culture, um, counterculture material, um, and it has everything from motorcycles themselves to uh, textiles, um, photographs, papers, film. And um, he's trying to build a museum uh, from this material. And my husband Richard and I are working to uh, catalog everything that he has and um, do a professional level arrangement and description for this private collection. And it has been really fun to go from working at a place like New York Historical Society, which was founded in 1804, to uh, to this job, uh, which was founded, you know, just a couple of years ago, and uh, to really kind of start an archive from the ground up, and um, and we've been doing that for about two years, uh, and there's just um, you know more and more wonderful material coming into the collection all the time, so. Uh, that's a bit of my background in, in what I do. So I want to circle back a little bit. Mm-hmm. You had a very interesting uh, project that you did when you were a curator at UCLA. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit about how you got interested in that? And if you already had an interest in doing 
uh, underrepresented groups or what spurred that project? Ah, good. Thank you for asking. I I love talking about this project. Um, When I was at UCLA, I was working uh, as a a person who was kind of in management of different processing projects. So, um, and I was working with uh, one of our curators, the curator of Collecting Los Angeles, uh, that program, which was focused on, you know, LA cultures and trying to bring uh, more diverse material into the collections. And uh, I was at a conference for the Society of American Archivists in New Orleans, I believe it was in 2014. And a group of my colleagues from Cornell University were talking about their hip hop archive that they had just uh, just established. And it's this incredible collection uh, of hip hop uh, history and music and ephemera uh, and papers. And what's interesting is that, um, well, one of the many things that's interesting is that the way it was started, like there wasn't, from what I was told, there there wasn't a lot of traction in trying to place the collection in New York. Some people wonder why this hip hop collection is out in Ithaca and not, you know, in the Bronx. But uh, so anyway, the you know the people at Cornell really had the vision to see how um, academically rich this material was, and they acquired it for their university. And I kind of and I sat in the audience listening to this presentation from Catherine Regan and some other folks, uh, and thought, you know. <laughs> I'm professionally jealous. I would really like to do something like that myself. And why don't I? So uh, I thought, I don't really know anything about hip hop, but I do know uh, a little bit about punk rock music. And my secret dream, of course, would be to run an archive uh, dedicated to The Clash, but (laughs) uh, that didn't really seem to be a good fit for Southern California at UCLA. So uh, we decided to focus on uh, LA area, Southern California punk rock and culture. Uh, and after I came back from the conference, I went to my boss, Tom Hyrie, and said, you know, I had this idea. And he said, that sounds great. Why don't you put together a working group and see what you can do? And I thought that was the loveliest um, vote of confidence <laughs> I've gotten uh, in years of my career and just like, see what happens, like give it a shot. And, um, I was really excited. So I kind of ran around the department and asked a whole bunch of people if they'd be interested in trying to get this off the ground. And everyone I asked said yes. So that included some catalogers, some curators, uh, an oral historian, um, who else? We had some professors on the group, um, I'm trying to remember some archivists, obviously. And um, what became kind of funny when I explained this to people later is that we formed this collective of folks who were all, uh, you know, working on this effort. Um, and sometimes I would accidentally refer to it as a committee. So when I would approach donors about, you know, thinking about, um, placing their materials at UCLA, I would say, well, you know, the punk committee meets once a month and they would give me this look like the punk committee meets once a month. That's not very punk. (laughs) That's super corporate. 
so uh so it was fun to explain like well we're not quite that um established <laughs> you know we're not the man um but what we uh, what this group of folks wanted to do was kind of collaborate and work uh, experimentally on a curatorial effort whereas most of the curatorial efforts were the uh were the responsibility of one or maybe two people on staff so this was a whole group we got together we tried to decide what we wanted the most or what would be our dream collections or what what we would try to acquire who we would approach and how we wanted the material to be presented. And what came up over and over again is that, you know, this was kind of an underdocumented community, the punk community. And it didn't just involve musicians, although those would be, you know, the, the major players, but also artists and fashion designers and photographers and fans. And I was really interested in making sure that fans got represented in this group. And, um, you know, because they were the ones who put together like wonderful zines and uh, scrapbooks and, you know, really documented their time in the scene. And of course, we were looking for, you know, highlight uh, items as well. And we approached um, several uh, several members of bands and um, what was really illuminating about that work is that uh, you know punks back in the day like they didn't get paid you know they, <laughs> they didn't have any money and even now they uh, uh, unless they gave up their careers to be accountants or something uh, a lot of them don't really have very much but they but they have their stuff which is still so great so we were trying to figure out a way to make sure that we could offer them something in return for them offering us their archives for research purposes. And one of the things that is so helpful about having an important collection in an archive is that it's safe. It's, uh, it's in a temperature and climate control um, environment has people looking after it uh, you know it's um, it's uh, taken care of it's put in archival housing and it's available for people to use so the artwork that you have created as a punk um, lives on in this way and is available for you know a new generation of punks to or anybody really to um, to come along and use that material and um, kind of further the the uh, creative process and output. Um, so it was really one of the most um, rewarding and uh, just fun <laughs> things that I've done in my career. And my hope for the the um, effort in the long term was that it would be a pilot project for uh, other underdocumented communities. I wanted to uh, I wanted to talk about uh, bike gangs. I wanted to talk about or acquire material from um, skaters and surfers and um, gangs and like other kinds of subcultures that exist in uh, Southern California that are so part of 
our understanding of this of this unique place that we live, but don't necessarily uh, show up yet in archives. So, so that was my uh, that was my intention with that effort, and I'm very happy to say that uh, since I left UCLA, they've carried on with collecting even more material, and they've done some things like uh, film festivals, and there was a conference a couple years ago with um, that was led by Jessica Schwartz, who's a music professor at UCLA, and it was a it was a two day extravaganza of of uh, punks coming to talk about their feelings about um, saving materials. And uh, there was even a dance at the end. So (laughs) it was, it was really wonderful. It was one of, as I said, one of the uh, proudest moments of my career to kind of put that group together. So that opens questions for me. Mm -hmm. One is, did you get to meet the clash? (laughs) (laughs) No, sadly, not yet. But um, yeah, my hero Joe Strummer died a few years ago, and but the uh, the guitarist Mick Jones he has his own what he calls rock and roll library, uh, which is all of his memorabilia and um, you know song lyrics and photos and stuff like that. So I don't know if he. I, I'm really happy in my current job, but uh, I always joke that like if Bruce Springsteen called me or if Mick Jones called me, like you know I would. I would have to go and be their archivist instead, but <laughs> you know, maybe someday. <laughs> I must go. It's an archival emergency. Exactly. <laughs> so, and that leads to my next question. You said that you reached out to these people and we're talking about underrepresented groups and letting them know that, you know, archives are interested and, and particularly specific archives are starting to create specific collections. And we've identified you as someone that we're very interested in being a core part of this collection. Um, it just strikes me that it might seem rather strange to some of these people to get, you know, a random email from unknown archivists at UCLA saying, give me your stuff. So how do you actually uh, reach out to people in a way that is going to make a meaningful uh, connection with them to open the dialogue and see how you all can collaborate? And maybe it's that they're going to give you stuff for the archive. Maybe it's that they're going to show up four years later at this, you know, huge event and sing or, or be a speaker. But how do you start building a relationship with someone whose mindset might be, I, I am completely outside academe. I'm completely mm-hmm. outside libraries. You and I don't have a reason to be communicating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well said that. And we try very hard not to just call people out of the blue and be like, Hey, I want your stuff. (laughs) Um, there's, um, we were lucky in that, uh, a few members of our committee or our collective had strong ties to the punk community already. And, um, and our performing arts collections were already extremely strong. So, um, UCLA had a good reputation for the most part with, uh, with other donors, so it wasn't the easiest thing, but there were there were enough connections where one person said, "Oh, I know this person from a band. Um, I could call her, uh, and she might know somebody, and this person might know somebody else." And um, so we tried not to call people completely cold or or contact people completely cold. Um, we also did outreach at some events like um, zine fairs and uh, 
some art installations. Um, there, I did a, uh, an opening speech about it at UCLA um, when we were first getting started. And um, I kind of peppered the record stores with flyers. Uh, record stores, listen to me. <laughs> uh, I sound old. <laughs> um, we have one in my town. Okay, good. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> um, places where people buy music. Uh, so we did, a, yeah, like I said, we did a lot of outreach and we were trying to, um, by word of mouth, make it known that we were, that we were doing this and, uh, and to use our contacts so that we didn't seem like completely avaricious or like out of the blue or just, you know, weird getting in touch with people. And what was really surprising to me, and I guess should not have been, was the number of folks who were really wary about um, an institution wanting to to house their materials. Uh, to me, UCLA is a is an exemplar of you know the public institution. Um, you know, it has very liberal uh, access policies for the library. I mean, it, it's a it's a it's a government institution, so everyone has access to it. So, for me to hear that some people considered UCLA like the establishment or the man, you know, was kind of shocking to me. So, I had to kind of quickly pivot and learn um, that some people would think that way. And it became my job to explain that we didn't really feel that way and that we were trying to, and if that's how people thought, this is what, was an effort that we were trying to change that perception in, um, in growing our collections in this way to bring more people in and to make sure that more people were represented. Um, so that was, um, it wasn't, always you know and we were met with some um resistance and some folks were just not interested or not ready or it was too uh too soon um they weren't quite ready to think about um you know parting with materials that they were still either actively using or were kind of holding in trust for uh their friends who had passed on so, um, so yeah, um, I'm trying to think of what else to say about that was, um, I, I'm really pleased though that nothing was ever unpleasant, you know, no one ever like slammed the door in my face or anything like that. But there, you know, there were some times where it was kind of like, yeah, I'm, I, I support you guys, but I'm not quite ready. And, you know, maybe we'll talk some other time. <laughs> But I think what you're getting at is one of the most important things about archival work, which is why people save things. And the whys are the reasons it's hard to part with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there are plenty of donors who, and, and not just in this uh, effort, but, in, you know, throughout that I've dealt with throughout my career, who... Um, are either still actively using their own papers uh, or their own research materials 
or they're just, you know, they, they are concerned. They're just not ready to let things go. And, um, I've, I've also dealt with people who have made plans for their estate. So if they're not ready to let things go now, it's understood, you know, through legal documents that, you know, the, an institution or a repository will be receiving material after they pass away. And that can be very comforting to folks as well to know that their material will be taken care of after they're gone. And it's not going to be, uh, you know, accidentally tossed in a dumpster or something like that. Um, so I, I also like that uh, solution because it kind of, um, it means things will continue to grow into the future. And, you know, f- uh, from a researcher standpoint or an archivist standpoint, like, yeah, it would be kind of a bummer that I couldn't work on that particular collection that I was hunting down um, myself, like right now, but somebody else will in the future. So that's also good. You mentioned quite a lot of community outreach going to uh, the record stores. And we definitely have one in my town and they definitely sell vinyl, like records, records. Um, And so those do still exist, but you do have to look for them strategically. And then I think you're referencing a, a time period when they were much more prevalent. And yet not every record store, even when record stores were more prevalent, had significant collections of every genre. Some really focused on, you know, just the top 40 of what was on the radio because that was really selling for them. Um, and so you had to be really strategic about what neighborhoods you were going to, what venues you were going to, how you were building these relationships, which leads to your current job with the Outlaw uh, Motorcycle Collections. What is the outreach for that like? That's largely handled by uh, my boss, the curator. Um, his name is Bo Bushnell, and there was a piece on him in the Los Angeles Times a few weeks ago. So I would encourage anybody interested to to take a look at that. And um, he is really a genius at um, researching people who have kind of gone off the grid Uh engaging with them, getting them to understand and respect what it is that he's doing. And um, he has had a lot of success, uh, again, kind of in the same sphere as uh, helping people to understand that the things that they love and have held on to so dearly will be taken care of and that people really do care about that history and, um, again, you know, it can be very, um, oh, what's the word I want? It can be, it, it can be very comforting and a great relief for folks who are maybe, um, facing their own mortality to think that, okay, this thing that I loved so much is going to be cared for when I'm gone. So, yeah. I think both of these collections come back to sort of the universal question every human being has, which is, do I matter? Mm-hmm. And when you're underrepresented in archives, when you're an outlaw in your own society, you get a lot of messages that you don't matter. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And when you magnify that, uh, 
maybe magnify isn't the right word. Help me. Uh, what am I trying to say? So this is not, and this is not a new thing. Like you can be sort of an outlier. You can be on the, on the fringe of society, but there's a lot of people who aren't represented in archives who are like, you know, everyday normal people um, who I wouldn't necessarily describe as, um, you know, being um, outlaws in any way, but that is um, that's a that's a real issue that archivists and and historians and everybody who kind of works with archives is struggling with and has been. And I want to say recently, but that's actually not true. It's been for a long time that that folks have uh, really been thinking about how to be more representative. And I think, if I recall correctly there was some kind of meeting minutes or document from um, 1902 at the New York Historical Society, some kind of board meeting minutes or something like that. Um, And as I said before, the place was founded in 1804. So by 1902, they were thinking that they really needed to collect more material that was about everyday life and that would reflect everyday life. So, you know, they certainly weren't going to... um, turned down, uh, you know, George Washington's papers or, or whoever, you know, um, but they also wanted to really be able to show people in the future what life was like at, at their time. So, um, and I think, you know, other places have really faced that reality, uh, in the past decade or so, uh, quite assertively, which I think is great and amazing. And, um, they've gone so far as to, you know, actually change policies to, to hire new curatorial, um, staff in particular, uh, collecting areas. Um, I mean, I don't think in, I don't think 20 years ago there was any kind of, um, you know, indigenous people's curator at, at top tier um, institutions. I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, but that seems to be a pretty recent thing. And it's fantastic. You know, it's like finally there's someone it, it, to actually focus on this area and not just kind of um, to not have it be like, you know, what do you want to say? Like a, a small percentage of somebody else's job, you know. That opens a really complicated uh, subject of when we bring in underrepresented groups, who wants to be, who is the appropriate curator for that? Where is their connection to that material? And what is their understanding of the sacredness and the, the, the complexity of the meanings of various things? So I think that's a whole a level of complexity that I don't have the fluency to speak to, but I know it's really important. And I know that Smithsonian is now having a, a museum that's specifically dedicated to that and trying to work out how uh, that is done properly and sensitively because there are currently things um, in different museums that are not there with the permission of the peoples that they represent and those need to be returned. So there's a, a deep level of complexity there that I want to have um, 
respect and sensitivity for that as we become more representational, we have to be respectful of things that were not donated, but were taken. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I share with you the feeling that I don't have the fluency to speak to that very well, but, um, but yeah, the, uh, I think people are definitely turning away from the like specimen idea toward the humanity idea, um, or humanity, uh, aspect. Um, one, uh, again, I, I can't really speak about this terribly, um, cogently, but, um, if your listeners are familiar with the story that came out recently about, um, remains of some children who were victims of the move house bombing in Philadelphia in 1985, uh, that were at an institution and kind of got moved around and have only recently been returned to the family. It's a really, um, my, the only comment that I would make on that is that I, uh, I grew up in Southern New Jersey. So when that incident happened in Philadelphia in 1985, it was hugely, uh, impactful on my, uh, way of thinking and, um, just the reverberations of that incident have been felt through, uh, Philadelphia and the environs for, you know, since it happened. And it's, um, it's just, a, a, you know, to be, to say the least, it's a really interesting story about um, how these uh, remains came to be in the possession of um, a, a, an institution of higher learning and, you know, what needs to be done to make, well, I guess this, this is stating an opinion, but th- there needs to be something done to make that right. So uh, it's a, it's a fascinating story and um, it's, it's worth looking in that, looking up if you aren't familiar with it. And it is a, it is a real question with archives as uh, we work together, all scholars on, on what is an appropriate material and who really should have it. There's, there's reckoning to do with materials that aren't the archives to have. Mm-hmm. Um, a different, maybe a slight U-turn about sensitive materials. If we look at the archive where you are now, and we're talking about um, outlaws, I would imagine some of them have um, legal issues uh, and potentially safety issues. So what do you, what do you do in cases where, I don't know, witness protection uh, situations have come into play? Uh, If people have donated things, but you have to redact names, how are, as archivists more and more are working with sensitivity and privacy issues while trying to be representational and inclusive, how are those things playing out right now in your current job? Um, I'm trying to decide how much I want to talk about that. I, um, yeah, I mean, just inherently when you're, when you're, working with collections of material uh, uh, created by folks who have committed crimes um, and then made scrapbooks about those crimes. Uh, it, it's, it's definitely, um, it's, yeah, it's definitely hard to wrap your mind around uh, 
not just as an archivist, but as a, you know, a, a reader. Um, so what do I want to say about that? Um, since we are currently only open by invitation and it is technically, uh, you know, a private collection and we don't really have the capacity yet to invite many researchers to come and look at material. Um, I haven't been in the situation where I've been obliged to uh, make redactions or, um, or selections based on security concerns. We were talking um, off air a little bit about what it takes to process um, materials and why it can take so long to go from the initial acquisition to getting things to where they can be used by researchers and researchers. And, and part of it, we just touched on it's that there are a lot of sensitivity issues around any personal document, whether it's because it has sentimental and emotional value to the person who owned it mm -hmm. and it's difficult for them to release it or um, because there are cultural uh, sensitivities, there are uh, religious uh, concerns, there are um, legal issues there's a whole host of reasons why a document is not just a document and why an artifact is not just a thing. Right. Um, but there's also the, the complexity on your end of uh, the whole accession process of uh, recording things, but also the, the correct way to store something so that it's actually preserved. Mm -hmm. And there's a real uh, financial cost to that and a time and labor cost to that. Can you... Um, give us kind of a fly on the wall perspective of if something comes into you, mm -hmm. what happens next? Ah, yes. Uh, I was doing a little bit of math, which is always kind of dangerous on my hands, but, um, you know, most of the reason that I went into study history is that I was told there would be no math, but it's true in my work, um, as a, as a projects manager, uh, you know, one of the things that we had to think about all the time was um, just basic costs. And so ideally what would happen is, uh, you know, a curator or some kind of contact would talk to a potential donor, come to an agreement about uh, what it is that the library or repository is going to accept. Um, sometimes the repository has restrictions and says, you know, I'm terribly sorry, but I can't take that giant artwork or I can't take that, uh, whatever. I don't want your phone bills. Um, but I really want these, uh, drafts of your literary masterpiece. And I want these photographs, but you know, the, the material from your niece's third birthday party, we don't need. So, so there's some negotiation that starts there with the, with the person, um, the donor and the initial contact. So once things are decided on what we're actually, what the library is actually going to acquire, there are legal documents, uh, deeds of gift that get signed that um, donors, uh, and, and these vary in uh, degrees of legalese, uh, depending on where you work, um, I think a lot of larger institutions are now asking that the donor also transfer intellectual property rights or copyright to the material that they're donating. And um, the reason that they do this is, uh, you know, a lot of times um, if people want to quote from the, from the works or the material later on, 
it's just easier for the institution to handle those kinds of requests um, or, or uh, reproduction requests, like uh, images from the collection, than having the the donor do it themselves. You know, it's a real pain in the neck to deal with, like having to approve every um, request for photocopies or, or copies from your collection. Um, so, uh, so we come to agreements, we sign deeds of gift. And when, uh, at, usually at that point, the accessioning archivist takes over and arranges for, you know, the very like nitty gritty basic things that a lot of people I think don't think about, or this is the kind of hidden labor in that, you know, we need to put it, depending on the size of the collection, we might need to put a team together to go and fetch it. Depending on the condition of the material, uh, you know, we might need to spend a couple days at a person's house putting it in boxes so that it's ready to transfer. Um, you know, I have seen things in... Oh, okay, so here's my <laughs> here's my shaggiest dog story. Uh, when I was working in Philadelphia, we were acquiring a collection from a local charity, and the building that they worked out of had been a bank. So, uh, and let me also say that it was February and it was snowing. So we pulled up the truck to the old bank. <laughs> we had to march in, go down a spiral staircase to where the vault was, like a literal bank vault was. The, that's where all the archives were being held. So we, um, we packed them up in this vault, uh, went back up the spiral staircase, no elevator, and went, you know, and, and ferried the boxes out through the snow into the back of the van. <laughs> so, um, you know, these are things that you can't really put a price on, but it definitely, it's, it's a cost for sure. So uh, once material comes into the archive, um, that's when decisions are made about who's going to process it, if, if there is anyone to process the collection. And by process, what I mean is um, arrange and describe uh, you know, we put things into uh, an order if there is none, or if there's an existing order, we try to maintain that and and make uh, a finding aid that's understandable for researchers to find what it is that they're looking for. We do at that point what we call non-interventive conservation, where if a photograph, for example, is uh, is has some rips in it, we might put it in a mylar sleeve. Um, if uh, if nothing's in folders, we would put them in acid-free folders, um, and uh, you know other actions like that to care for the material so that it can be handled safely. Um, a lot of nineteenth-century pins that I have pulled out of paper, <laughs> uh, and um, so to to kind of bring that down to the nitty-gritty. Um, an archival box is five inches wide, a regular doc box. And those run anywhere from $7 to $14 a piece. Um, Acid-free folders are about 50 cents each. Uh, mylar sleeves, an, an eight by five um, by, or sorry, eight and a half by 11 mylar sleeve uh, can cost anywhere from $1.30 to $2 a piece. So if you... Uh, if you have five inches of material that will fit in this box, that's one box. Um, let's say that you 
use, you know, 10 folders in a box. Um, and if there are like several documents that are uh, especially important or worth preserving um, with a little extra care, uh, that let's say we're like looking at five mylar sleeves per box. So you've got about $22.50 in supplies alone in each five inch section of a, of an archival fonts. Um, so if you have a 10 foot collection that requires about 24 boxes and all of those folders and mylar sleeves and acid free paper and those kinds of things, it can cost about, uh, like almost $600 to process a 10 foot collection in supplies alone. And, once you add an archivist salary and benefits and institutional overhead uh, or infrastructure like um, computers and uh, electricity, uh, keeping the lights on while somebody's at work, um, those costs add up rapidly. And I am not entirely sure if all donors understand that they may be donating material, but it does not, it's not cost-free for the institution to acquire it. And that's why a lot of times um, curators also ask for a concomitant donation of, um, of funds to go with the papers, which uh, can be a little um, awkward and, and, uh, you know, there have been times when people said, well, I'm already giving you my stuff. Why do you need more money? And I totally understand that feeling and I get where they're coming from. But, you know, once you kind of break it down into those very uh, basic brass tack terms, uh, there it, it's a lot more understandable as to why archival work is not, um, it's not free or cheap or easy. <laughs> I'll just say that. And it, it also helps... I think some of the listeners understand, especially when we see some of the articles about uh, specific uh, well-known institutions that have um, things in their collections that they've been told they have to return. Mm-hmm. And it's long overdue for them to do that. And they say, but we've put so much time and money into preserving these things. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't mean I, I agree right. uh, that they are not supposed to return it. Um, but it does illuminate for us what it is that what their sense of their investment in caring for these things mm-hmm. is. Yeah, and the kind of, the argument like would it even still exist if it hadn't been cared for um, by a repository? Yeah, it's the yeah. It's, it's the complexity that paper and belongings and even human remains are designed to decay, which mm-hmm. sounds painful. Uh, to say, and yet it is the natural way of things. Paper is is not meant to live forever, and neither are most items. And the things that are meant to live for a very, very long time, like plastic, are (laughs) actually really problematic. Mm -hmm. And so when we are fighting against nature's process to have things not decay, Mm -hmm. It's incredibly expensive because there are other things going on in archives as well, including these incredibly expensive climate control um, systems, 
um, dust control uh, systems, light control systems. Um, if you've gone to some museums and, and they'll have something very, very rare on display, you can be in, in the most dim lighting, peering through very, very thick glass, trying to glimpse this precious thing. Mm-hmm. And that's because that's what they have to do to preserve it so we can just get that very difficult glimpse of it. Yeah. Um, because the, these things are meant to decay mm-hmm. and we're fighting against that. Yeah. Um, I think a lot about uh, the term acceptable loss, right? And archives, <laughs> you know, some like trait thing that I, I say all the time and I trot out all the time is that um, if we saved everything, then nothing would be special. And while that's true, um, in my opinion, uh, I think that there's also a continuum of history. Like, um, you know, the, the letters from Vindolanda where soldiers at writing home, asking his mother to send him socks. Like that has been every soldier's experience, I guess, you know, since Vindolanda and before and, and up to today. But the reason that it's interesting is that, you know, it's on this material that was from Roman times and like long, you know, a long time ago that kind of uh, ties us all together and makes us understand that we, you know, we're sharing this experience with someone who lived a really long time ago. Um, And I also tell people all the time, like I've heard so many stories about people who burn their diaries, but save their canceled checks. (laughs) And I'm begging you, please, (laughs) if you have to burn something, do it the other way around. (laughs) Like, please save your diary and throw out your canceled checks because it is going to take, however, you know, the amount of time, uh, you know, from Roman times until now, (laughs) from now until the future that anyone will care about your, your canceled checks, Um, so there's a, yeah. And it's also kind of a rookie archivist thing where they want to save everything. You know, when somebody's working on a processing project for this first time and they want to save absolutely every scrap of paper and, you know, carefully put this peanuts cartoon into a mylar sleeve. And it's, it can be, um, it, it, doing this work for a long time can make you feel very jaded. And I have a feeling that uh, sometimes when I'm telling stories to people, they, they kind of react in, in surprise, uh, if not horror when I'm, you know, not, when I'm either not impressed with something or uh, I think it's okay to throw something out. Um, You're an archivist. What do you mean? Why would you throw anything out? <laughs> You know, the simple answer is, well, the simple answer, which is also the complex answer, is that we only have so much time, we only have so much space, and we only have so much money. And uh, yeah, sure, it would be amazing to be able to save everybody's canceled checks, you know, till the end of time. But that's just not, uh, it's not sustainable. And it's not, um, it's not realistic. So uh so I would hope that people who um, who come to use archives or or are considering donating what they might have would be understanding about the kind of appraisal process that materials go through uh, and the reason why curators 
or collect or um, repositories take certain things and not others. It's um, it's one of those things that I, I have had to explain multiple times, and I, I never mind doing it because it's um, I feel like it's a good you know teaching moment. Um, but uh, but yeah, it can be it can be hard for some people to kind of wrap their minds around the fact that um, no, we can't save everything from everybody all the time. And it's not necessarily intuitive. I, I'm thinking specifically of being at a conference and um, a, an archivist was talking about how their archive was actively soliciting um, papers of prominent female scholars mm. and was trying to make those connections while those scholars were still alive to, because they had um, had things donated posthumously and the families had very carefully curated it before they donated it. Mm. And so they basically got the original versions of published papers and books, which is lovely, but they also had wanted what the family had thrown out. They right. had wanted the rough drafts. They had wanted the marginalia. They had wanted um, the missteps so that they had the true story mm-hmm. of the creation of this work. And instead they just got original you know, basically the first edition right. <laughs> version in this box, very nicely presented. And, and, and the, you know, the descendants were very proud of it. Like we knew this is what you would want. Mm, yeah. And so exactly. after this happened, yeah. 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 And so after this happened a few times, the archivists uh, were going deliberately to women's history conferences and saying, you know, we are now trying to solicit things from, from historians who are, who are prominent or who we think are going to be prominent. And, you know, disclosure, they were, they were not headhunting me. They were not like you. <laughs> I was just sitting there listening to um this out of interest. And they said that um, one of the things that was fascinating to them is, you know, they're, they're deliberately working with, um, you know, scholars who are still alive. And this one scholar had said, oh, sure, you know, I'll get that to you. But let me just pull out all this stuff about, you know, when my kids had the measles and all this stuff that you don't want. And the archivist was saying, no, that's exactly what we want. Mm-hmm. We want the life that you lived while you built the career that you built. Mm-hmm. We want to know the whole social history of you in addition to the intellectual output that you had. Sure. And, you know, here's a, a women's historian who's flabbergasted by that, right? Because she's thinking, but that's not interesting. <laughs> you know, my kid's throwing up on the floor uh, yeah. is not an interesting story. And the archivist is, is saying, Yes, it is. And so even, you know, as historians, even as family members of, of someone, we don't have that perspective. We really need the archivist to tell us what your vision is of what you're curating and what of our big giant pile of stuff is the human experience that you're really trying to preserve to, right. to greater the, the understanding of what the human experience is. So for one person, their canceled checks may tell the entire story of, you know, their alimony. Sure. Yeah. Or um, something that was truly, truly meaningful to them. And yet in the, in the filling in the gaps of what is the human record of what is the human experience of what helps us keep making archives more representational, truly a female scholar who had to take time off work because her kids had the measles does fill in a gap Absolutely. in a way that someone's bank records don't. Right. We already have plenty of, you know, alimony stories. Thank you. Um, but we need these these glimpses into the fullness of life, which motorcycle outlaws give us, which the punk rock scene gives us, which the fanzines give us, because we get more and more of those pieces 
of what it truly is to be a human being in all its messy and glorious aspects. Um, but you have to sort of guide us to that. Otherwise, we do. We give you a, a carefully clipped Peanuts cartoon. Right. And we're like, we love this one. <laughs> it yeah. meant a lot to me. <laughs> and if you think about, like, uh, you know, what if a woman historian uh, only wrote one book? Let's just say that. Uh, is that because she had children to take care of? And can we think about, like, what else would she have done if she you know, if childcare hadn't been uh, a priority or, you know, you can, yeah, you can learn so much about someone's, um, the entirety of their career and their, their personhood, you know, um, by knowing those kinds of details. And yeah, so it, yeah, it's the yeah, type you of have to, where you, sorry, I was going to say, you have to tell us what you're willing to put archival, put in archival boxes, sure. you know, that, that interplay of, yeah, you yeah. like this well enough to spend $600 saving it. <laughs> yeah. And it's, um, and I guess I should also say that, you know, all of my stories kind of come with the, the caveat, like the, it's the joke in archives that, um, you know, our favorite expression is it depends, like do, um, Speaking of canceled checks at the New York Historical Society, they had canceled checks uh, from Boss Tweed that, you know, showed the people he was bribing and um, the amounts that he was paying them and the the uh, the money he was siphoning off of accounts that he wasn't supposed to be doing. So those are some pretty interesting canceled checks. Uh, so I can't say that I wouldn't keep those because obviously uh, they would be definitely keepable. But um or retainable, but uh, but yeah, it's um, it, it, it's it's all situational, and every archive is unique, just like every person is unique, and um, the uh, oh, sorry, one other thing I wanted to say um, about that is I I think when. I, I do think that the curator donor relationship is very important. And, you know, kind of speaking earlier about underdocumented communities, like the, the idea that um, the curator, like we don't always get to choose what curator we get, you know? Uh, so I think that from my side of the desk, like we all try to be, um, as empathetic as possible in all situations. So um, even though we might not have uh, the personal experience or the, or, you know, super in-depth subject knowledge about a particular thing that, that is important to the donor, um, we definitely all try our best to, to be cognizant of um, our own biases and, you know, make sure that we're not um, declining something just because we don't get it, you know. <laughs> uh, and a lot of places are lucky in that they have um, other colleagues they can bounce ideas off of or, um, you know, in academia, there's always faculty who might offer an opinion about, um, hey, this collection seems really cool. I'd like, you know, here's my opinion about why you should get it. Um, so I would like actually more of that. I would really love for more, uh, archivist academic, um, conversations about, you know, what do, what do academics 
what what are you looking for? What is it that you're, what's the next great thing that you want to find? Um, what kind of, what do you wish uh, archivists were collecting that we're not doing yet? Well, I can only speak for me and it's, it's the, um, it's the everyday life. It's the things that really tie our humanity together. Um, I feel like important people's stuff will always be saved. And so I think it's the ordinary person's diary and it's being representational about, you know, um, if you collect, you know, if you're an archive that collects school uh, yearbooks, being very intentional about getting ones from public schools and not just the um, private schools who have extras to donate. Um, it's, it's making things more representational so that when historians write history, we're not continuing to write uh, top-down histories. And we're not continuing to assume that everybody wanted to emulate the 1%. Um, when I teach 19th century um, women's history, students will, will understandably have questions about fashion and they'll be able to search online and find, you know, pictures. And what they're finding is the 19th century equivalent of Vogue magazine, right? And my fear is that, you know, 200 years from now, people are going to think that my greatest aspiration in life was to have a Birkin bag um, <laughs> and, and to, you know, dress like the very unhappy looking models in Vogue. Yeah. And, and I think but I've I just haven't eaten anything in years. Yeah, so, yeah. I don't, I don't want that. And if yeah. I had the money for those things, that's not where I would want to invest in. And it's not sour grapes. It's just a very, very different ethos and uh, value system that makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. And while I do respect that designers are artists, um, I also don't go to art museums and really wish I could buy, you know, a Van Gogh. Mm -hmm. So I, I can respect art without thinking I would I would give up all of my savings account and my ability to pay rent if I could just have these really expensive handbags. Yeah. Um, and so that's my concern when archives are not representational is that we we. We, we, we make our assumptions based on the preponderance of what we can read. Mm -hmm. And that very often is the, um, the 1% or the fraction of 1% materials. And then we extrapolate from there what the rest of society, the 99%, the 99.9% mm. lived, wanted, felt, and dealt with. Right. And that ratio doesn't work. Right. What is um, so interesting about studying 20th century history is that um, so many more people were literate and had access to, uh, to writing materials. Um, and, you know, with the explosion of social media, uh, that again is not free, but it's, you know, it's a lot easier to access. There, there are so many more voices that we can hear and it's not that people were voiceless. It's that, that, you know, there wasn't anyone to listen. Um, you know, I, I learned early on in my career that uh, when folks would come in and ask for like, I, I'm looking for diaries of slaves or washerwomen or, you know, farmers, whatever. <clears throat> and you kind of had to explain to rookie historians that, that, you know, we don't have a lot of that uh, represented in the collection because it just, doesn't exist. You know, there weren't a lot of washerwomen who had the leisure time to sit and write a diary at the end of the day. Uh, when you do find things like that, it's fantastic. And everybody is, you know, 
amazed and <laughs> everyone wants to to acquire it for their own library but um you know there's there's this there's some gaps that uh just exist in history and there are some that are kind of uh at least um if not on purpose they're they're uh it's through negligence but um but yeah, it's uh, it's been really interesting, just like the, the paper explosion, um, and I've I've read some really boring diaries, I have to tell you. But at least this lady like had the means to, you know, share her thoughts and feelings on in this little booklet that was pre-made and she could buy at the stationery store. Uh, so I'm so glad it exists, you know. In the few minutes we have left, I want to ask you what is inspires you about your work as an archivist? My favorite thing is to connect the reader to the material that best suits his or her project or their project. Um, I find it inspiring when, um, you know, somebody asks me a question that they think is maybe really esoteric or super bizarre. And if it comes to me that I think, Oh, Hey, we have a collection that might help you and then bring it to them and have them look through it. And they have that epiphany moment or that eureka moment. And they find something that really helps. Um, I love that. I mean, that's like uh, that's a real boost of serotonin. <laughs> um, I'm also inspired by uh, the fact that, more people um, kind of uh, appreciate archives and understand uh, that even if they aren't interested in like looking at the old papers, that the old papers sometimes inform their favorite movie or their favorite TV show or their favorite book. And uh, we were talking about this last time, but like the, the antiques roadshow effect and where people I think have been, uh, enlightened to like, oh, and this is just going to sound so, um, what do I want to say? This is, <laughs> is going to sound so nerdy, but like, um, it's just really cool stuff, <laughs> you know? And I, I can't even put that in any sort of, um, uh, advanced language. <laughs> it's just a, it's just a feeling like there's stuff that's really cool and that people like to look at it and feel, feel some connection to, uh, to something that means something to them or to, to others. Uh, and it doesn't always have to have a direct relevance to your life, but um, gosh, I mean, the, I think of some of the things that I've handled in working in archives and just the, again, I don't like to be too metaphysical, but the, the whole like chills that you get when you think about the, the provenance of some of these items and how lucky we are that they have survived when a lot of things haven't. What would really inspire me throughout the rest of my career as well is uh, see the, uh, um, the connection that people make to the past and to find, you know, to find something of themselves in an archive is, uh, is just thrilling to me. That is a wonderful place to leave it for today. Um, I feel like you and I can have another conversation in the future. And I, I hope that you will join me again and we'll do part three of 
at talking about archives. At- oh, thank you. Yeah, I love talking to you. We have the best time. <laughs> and I think listeners get so much out of it. So thank you so I much so. for being here today, Megan Fraser, and talking to us about the ethics and concerns about underrepresented groups in archives. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.